Welcome to Lessons for Life, where we seek to learn, love, and live the Word of God. Now, here is James Long, Jr. Well, good morning. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3? Mark chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I, I wonder, how do you deal with rejection? You know, when, uh, when people are going against you, how do you deal with accusations that are made against you, against, against your character, against the things that you've done? How do you handle that? I, I also wonder, and I'm asking you, what what is your opinion uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ? When you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is he to you? And I, I'm not looking just for the Sunday school answer. I'm looking really for what it is that you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so my first question to you is, how do you deal with rejection and how do you deal with accusation? And then I ask you about your real opinion of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, um, Ken Sandy has this article, and it's called Charitable Judgments. It's a great article. If you Google it, um, it's a great article to look through. And, and he talks about uh, this tendency that we have to make uncharitable judgments of one another in our lives. You, you ever get to a place where it's like, I, you said these three words, I knew it? Have you ever said that? You, you see, you heard about somebody doing something. It's like, I knew it about that person. And there, it's like, you know, you've already in your heart and mind have already judged him, judged her previously. And then some evidence comes to the surface that seemingly proves to you that you were right. I knew it. You know, um, oftentimes we will find ourselves, especially those that are in leadership, will have people that will make judgments about us that are in leadership. And I think that's just natural. We do that politically. We do that in churches. We do that even in our families. Children will judge parents. Anybody that's in authority above us, we have this natural tendency to want to judge. And some judging is is very necessary. The Bible tells us that some judgment is very necessary. You should be in judging what I'm going to be preaching on right now. As the Bereans and Acts took their Bible and they heard Paul speaking, they wrote down what Paul said and then they went back to Scripture to compare what he said to see if it was true. You should be doing that anytime anybody gets in a pulpit in front of you or teaching in front of you. You should be so discerning, so judging that you're going back to make sure what they're saying is true. That said, some some judging is absolutely wrong, and it's ungodly. And some judging can be extremely um, negative and painful. And and there's sometimes we judge people's motives and hearts without having full information, and we judge them so wrongly, and we, we attack their motives, and we attack them. Sometimes we slip up in words. And some people can judge even the words or even the actions that other people do and then read the worst motive behind it. I don't know if that's you. And we we need to be very careful to avoid that kind of judgment because if you don't avoid that kind of judgment, you will find yourself opening yourself up to great struggles. 
And so Sandy had talked about in this article, he had talked about the fact that the reason why we struggle with judgments at times is that we are selfish at heart, prideful, self-righteous, maybe insecure or jealous, prejudice, unforgiving, but all of it comes down to an issue of a lack of love. And I think he did a really good job in that article by talking about the fact that when I allow selfishness or pride or self-righteousness or insecurity or jealousy or self-pity or prejudice or unforgiveness or a lack of love to, to boil up in my heart, I will tend to look outward towards others and see them as so much worse than myself. It's a problem. And so what is the answer to critical judgments? What is the answer? Charitable judgments is the answer. But the greatest answer is Christ. That when we see Christ and when we see the gospel and when we live like the gospel, live out the truths of the gospel, that is what does something radically different in people's lives, in homes, in churches and communities. So I want you to think today about those principles today because we're going to see several groups of people making accusations against the Lord Jesus Christ, judging him. And they're going to come at him with different viewpoints. And each one of the viewpoints they're going to come at him are going to be wrong. Look with me in, in Mark chapter 3. We're going to pick up at verse 20. Mark chapter 3, verse 20 Read with me what it says. Then he, Christ, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went in to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said them in a parable, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, your, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those that sat around, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is uh, God's sufficient, eternal, authoritative, life-giving and life-changing word. Would you pray with me? So, Lord, today, there are some accusations that are going to be leveled against your son. 
And Lord, he is going to hear not only from his family, but he's going to hear from the religious leaders of the time. Lord, I thank you that Jesus teaches us how to handle these accusations. Jesus teaches us about being with people. He teaches us about grace. He teaches us about truth, though, Lord. I thank you for the truth that he was willing to share with people, the piercing truth. So, Lord, I pray that you would do your work in our hearts, that we would hear his truth, the only truth. I pray that you would remind us it's the truth that sets us free. I pray that you would remind us that that truth is found in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because there is no way to enter your kingdom except through him. So let us hear from the Savior. Let us marvel at what he has to say to us. And let us desire to be part of his family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I just want you to consider, as we were looking at that passage, there were there are four sets of people that I want you to think about. Uh, there was the crowd that was around him, number one. Second, there was his family that had come, two. The third, there was there were the leaders that had come up from Jerusalem and some of the other leaders in the town, three. So we have the crowd, we have his family, we have the leaders that had come up and then the leaders that were there. And then the fourth group I want you to think about are his committed followers, uh, his true family. So those are four groups. And I find it interesting that there are four basic responses that he that these groups have. The, the crowd seems to be curious. And as we've heard, as, as Doug and Tim have been preaching over these last several weeks, we see this crowd is building around Jesus, and they're building around Jesus, probably going back to the passage I talked about in Mark 1, where Jesus had healed the leper, you remember? And Jesus had said what to him? Do not say anything. I want you to go to the um, crowd, uh, to the leaders, and show yourself, don't say anything. But the man did exactly the opposite. And if you remember, right at the end of Mark chapter 1, because of the healing that Jesus had done, and because this man had now broken Jesus' word, now what was happening is everybody's coming to Jesus as kind of like a circus thing. You know, uh, entertainment. They want to see, or maybe, truly, they're broken physically, and they're coming for healing. And so, so now these crowds are so great that Jesus has even had to get into a boat to kind of stay away from the crowds. He's gone into desolation. If you remember at the end of chapter 1, the leper was outside of the group because this was leprosy. But he, now Jesus was inside the group. And now Jesus had switched places with him. Jesus now had to go into desolation. And the leper was now in the midst of the community. And now as we see in, in Mark chapter 2... And now in the beginning of three, we see that they're building. The crowd is coming. Jesus is healing. Jesus is releasing people from disease. He's releasing people from uh, demonic possession. And he's preaching this gospel message. And if you remember, flip back with me to uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The thesis, if you want to call it, or what Mark is looking to do is he says, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the what? Son of who? God. That's his, his, his whole message is going to be how Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then Jesus' primary message, you'll see it here in verse 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
That's Jesus' message. Yes, he was doing these miracles to authenticate the message, but he was not here primarily to bring produce healing. He was here to produce a spiritual healing that only could happen in him through the gospel. Jesus had oftentimes rebuked demons to say, you will not speak about who I am because Jesus wanted the message of hope to go out. The message of hope of the gospel. So the crowd is curious. They're, they're gathering around him. I want you to think about the family that's concerned. My mom is back there uh, today, and I, I'm thinking that if I have gotten, and my wife has told me oftentimes that sometimes I get so filled up with work, you know, and that it's like, you know, you really need to get some rest. You need to eat. You need to take care of yourself. I can get so burdened down at times with ministry that, you know, I mean, I can imagine that if my wife or my mother saw me not eating, they would be somewhat concerned. That's a family, a concerned family. But then there's a second part of his family that's not just concerned, but they're critical. They're saying he's out of his mind. And what we find in other parts of scripture is that his book, his brothers do not believe upon him at this time. So his brothers, and he probably had sisters, and that he did have sisters, and they are not believing upon him at this time. Now, this is important, that the people that were closest to him relationally still didn't get it. So they, they were concerned for him physically, but they believed critically that he had lost his mind. Well, there's a third group that you heard that, as I read, were the leaders. The leaders, now, as, as Doug and Tim have been preaching, these leaders have been kind of walking around the surface, and they've been evaluating what Jesus is doing. They're watching his actions, and they're hearing his message, and they don't like it. They, they go to their checklist, and they say, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. I don't know how it doesn't work. It lines up completely with the Old Testament, but it didn't make sense to them. And so now what they've done is now we've got the bigwigs coming down from Jerusalem. See, it's not the Warren County, Washington, New Jersey bigwigs. It's now the bigwigs from central, religious central Jerusalem are coming in to evaluate this leader that is speaking here. And they make a remarkable statement. They condemn him. We're going to see that in a moment. So the two basic accusations I want you to see is that, one, he's lost his mind, or two, he's in league with Satan. Those are the two. He's lost his mind, he's in league with Satan. So my simple outline, four basic points. Jesus' rejection in verses 20 to 22. Jesus' response in 23 to 27. Jesus' remarkable proclamation in verses 28 through 30, and then Jesus' real or true family in verses 31 to 35. Well, let's start with Jesus' rejection. Look here with me in verse 20. He said, then he, Jesus, went home. Where did he go to home? Now, Jesus, we found, did not have a home of his own, so this is probably Peter's home going back to chapter 1 in Capernaum. And so he's going to, that because that became the center um, place, and he probably went to that place, and the crowd gathered around him, and so that they could not even eat. 
You know, that happens at times in ministry. We find ourselves so getting so inundated with things that are happening. Now, Jesus is not sinning in any way. He is becoming so focused on this crowd. He knew what he needed to do to take care of himself. He he had plenty of times, you will find in the Gospels, where he broke away and slept when the other disciples were wondering where he was. There were times where he broke away to spend time with his father and pray. Jesus knew how to care for himself. He had not lost his mind. He had not become so overwhelmed like I may become uh, overwhelmed at times. But as we see in verse 21, his family was concerned. And then they went out to seize him, which is an interesting word here, because this word seize is used, I believe, 10 times in the Gospel of Mark. And each time it is used, it is about an arrest. It is about taking capture. And in essence, what I think they are thinking about doing is what we would call an intervention today. You know, somebody has become so caught up in their, in their life dominating struggles or some stif- uh, difficulty in their lives. And, and you go in as a family, you're so concerned and you say, I'm going to grab them and I'm going to remove them from this situation. I'm going to get them help that they need. Well, that is possibly what they were thinking. But the problem is they thought he was out of his mind, which is absolutely kind of crazy when you think about it. The, the son of God, the creator, the sustainer, the rightful end of all praise. He is raising people from uh, disease. He is removing people, uh, demons from their lives. He is preaching a good news of the word. People are coming amazingly, and they think he's lost his mind. Well, if that's not bad enough, the condemning leaders in verse 22 come. The scribes came down from Jerusalem, I told you, came from central. And they made a statement about Jesus, two statements. One, they said that he is possessed by Beelzebub. Beelzebub is this phrase used in the Old Testament, and in essence it means Satan. It actually means Lord of Dung, or Lord of the Flies, it could mean. So it's a, it's a really demeaning statement about the Lord Jesus Christ. But in essence, they're saying that he is possessed by Satan. But not only are they saying he's possessed by Satan, the second part of their accusation is the fact that the acts that he is doing are because of the power of Satan. See, they could not end with the conclusion that he's a lunatic, that he's deranged, that he's out of his mind. That can't be because they are seeing people healed from diseases. They're seeing people remove demons from their lives. There's something that's bringing this about. So they can't just say he's crazy. They have to give some cause behind it. And if they can't give the cause that it is about God and his glory, then they have to give another cause because it's an either-or scenario. It's either by the power of God or it's by the power of Satan. And they didn't want to give glory to God for this. What they wanted to do was, sadly... They wanted to give glory to Satan for this. So Jesus is being rejected, in essence, by his family. Jesus is being rejected by the highfalutin religious leaders of the time. And Jesus has a response here in verse 23, which is interesting. Jesus asks a question. It's often when you read the Gospels, when Jesus is confronted, he oftentimes will ask a question, a piercing question. It's like one finger out. You know, he never has to worry about the three fingers coming back at him, but he's got the one finger out at you. He said to them, I love this. He called them to his health. Jesus like, he says, come over here, guys. <laughs> come here. Let's have a seat. Let's kind of talk here in front of everybody. 
And he calls to him, and he said to them in a parable, how can Satan cast out Satan? So that's the question he asked. I, I love the fact that he calls them to him. I love the fact that he confronts them. Jay Adams is a biblical counselor, and he, he talks about the fact that good counseling is about caring confrontation out of concern. I like that. That, that you care enough about people that you're willing to confront people because you're concerned for them. Well, Jesus calls these people. He confronts them. Now he confronts them in front of them all. So this, let me just take a segue here because there are some basic principles about confrontation. Today we are confronting people on Facebook, which is kind of crazy. We're confronting people in text and emails, which is crazy. Uh, that, that's just, don't do that, please. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you got a problem with me, come and talk to me. Let's make a meeting. Let's talk face to face, you know, brother or sister, brother and brother, brother to sister, whatever it is. Don't confront somebody through those outside means. That's just weak. But let me tell you about some principles about biblical communication, uh, confrontation. In, Ma- in Matthew chapter 18, it says in verse 15 and following that if you have sinned against me, I am obligated to come and tell you just between the two of us. Okay? And if I, if I do that, I've won my brother or sister over. Great. If I can confront you and you agree with me, then that's great. We can do this. Now, it says also that if, if one or two are needed, if that doesn't work, then I'm called to bring one or two along so that every matter will be established between that community. And there's a third principle that if it doesn't work there, if I've gone one-on-one, maybe multiple times it doesn't work, and I brought one or two other people and it doesn't work, then I'm called to bring the leaders, the elders, the group of leaders that are there to bring people back to their senses. But that's not what we have here. This is a public sin. These religious leaders have spoken against God and God's work in a community that can't be private. The confrontation cannot just be between Jesus and this religious group. It's got to be the whole crowd. And so Jesus is going to confront these group, these people in front. Public sin needs a public rebuke and restoration. See, we, they, he needs to rebuke. When Jesus was rebuking the demons, what did he do? He silenced them. And now he's rebuking the religious leaders. He's shaming them. A godly form of shame. I love the fact that Jesus was a man, John 1.14 says, he was a man who dwelt with us. And he was a man full of grace and full of truth. He was there in that community. He didn't leave them. But he was a gracious man, but then he was a man who spoke truth. He could tell his great, one of his best disciples, one of his best friends, the house that he's in, he'll tell him a little bit later, get behind me, who? Satan. Jesus has no problem confronting people when he needs to. Well, Jesus is confronting these religious leaders, the people that should have known better, the people that had known the Old Testament. They should have known that this is the Messiah that is to come. And so Jesus had asked a question, then he calls them to himself. He confronts them in front of them all. He gives them two illustrations. Watch these two illustrations. Verse 24. If a kingdom 
is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Well, that just makes logical sense, right? So if you have a nation or a kingdom that is it's finding itself imploding from within, attacking each other, attacking the leadership, this is just to be expected that if a kingdom continually is divided itself, that kingdom ultimately cannot stand. We saw that here in our nation, here for during our Civil War period of time, where we had North and South, we had slave versus free, and this nation could not stand divided. There was going to have to be a great battle, and great bloodshed was going to have to be spilled out so that there could be a United States. And sad to say, we are back at a place where there is great division again. This... This organism, this organization of human beings with, with a leader that's leading them is this kingdom. And now it's being divided. And when it's divided, it will become defenseless and it will destroy itself. But then, and then Jesus gives a second illustration. He says, not only the kingdom, but the house. If a house is divided against itself, it will not stand. You know, this organization of human beings that are coming together under a leadership of parents. When you have a home where, where husband and wife are attacking one another, when you have a home where children and children are fighting one another, when you have a home where children are attacking parents and parents are attacking children, that home cannot stand. I see that so oftentimes in my counseling office. It breaks my heart. That to, to see the, the brokenness in marriage today. To see the brokenness that affects children today. Uh, to see the brokenness that just impacts people, that they have gotten so broken in their lives and, and their, their kingdom has been divided, their homes are being divided, and Jesus is saying that This just doesn't make sense, guys. He gives them a powerful conclusion in verse 26. Watch this. He says, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot what? Stand. But it's coming to an end. What he is doing is he's exposing the stupidity of their statement. The, the, how idiotic, how ludicrous it is. That you believe that Satan has so indwelt me that Satan is giving up people that he has indwelt. His possessions, he's giving them up. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan divided against himself cannot stand. Jesus gives a, a real explanation here. Look in here in verse 27. He gives the real explanation of what's happening here. He explains it. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless what? He first binds the strong man and then indeed he may plunder his house. So let's say some dude wants to walk over and steal from me and break into my house. He needs to bind me, probably my son because he's stronger than me, bind us so that now he could take the things in our home. You take down the largest person, the strongest person, so that you can plunder their goods. 
So Jesus is saying this. It's not that Satan is so indwelling me. It's not that Satan is allowing me to cast out demons and to heal people of disease. The strong man, Satan, is being countered by a stronger man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the goods that he's looking to plunder are you. Because there was a time where Satan and sin and death had a grip on your life. And Jesus said, I have come to set you free. You remember in Isaiah 61, it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the good news. He has sent me to cast out demons, to free people, to break. I can't even get the message. Let me go to Isaiah 61. That is so cool. I turned right to it. Hadn't even marked it. That is, man, amen. (laughs) The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus was coming to do. He was coming to set people free. So Jesus asked them a question. Jesus gave them two illustrations. Jesus gave them a powerful conclusion. Jesus gave them a real explanation. And then Jesus moves now to, from his response to a remarkable proclamation. Watch here in verses 28 to 30. Jesus' remarkable proclamation is this. There is good news. I want you to know that there's good news. Jesus begins with a precious promise. I need every single person here and there to hear me. There's a precious promise. Watch this. Truly, I say to you, all sin will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. If that doesn't get an amen, I don't know what will. Truly, God will forgive you everything including blasphemies. Uh, It's interesting. He says truly. In in some versions, if you have an older version, it may say verily, verily, amen, amen. In essence, what Jesus is saying is this. Jesus is making a statement. You know, sometimes I have to say to my family, I really mean this truly. And sad to say, it's the reason why I have to say truly is because I have not fulfilled what I had promised previously. So now I'm saying, this time I really mean it. Jesus is not making some difference in his character and saying truly, truly, because he had not been true before. No, Jesus is saying truly, truly, because of the certainty of what he is about to say. The power of the message that he's about to give. He says, truly, truly, because what he wants you to hear is that this is the truth. He says, all sins. I don't know what your sin is. I don't know if you have sins against God where you've disobeyed his commandments. I don't know if you have sins against God because you're idolatrous. I don't know if you have sins against God because you love this world. I don't know if your sins against God are because you've misused his name or or, or not believed him or doubted him or questioned his character. I don't know if your sins are against God because of your rebellion. I don't know what your sins against God are. 
I don't know if what your sins against personality of personality are. Maybe you're an angry person. Maybe you're an anxious person. Maybe you're a depressed person. Maybe you're a coward. Maybe you're fearful. Maybe you're greedy. Maybe you're irritable or lustful. I don't know what it is. Maybe you're selfish or vindictive or worry. I don't know what it is. Your sins against God, your sins of personality, your sins against others. I don't know how you've treated even the person sitting next to you even this morning. I don't know if you've been critical in spirit or deceitful. I don't know if you've been dishonest with them. I don't know if you have hatred in your hearts. Please, even in this political season, do not hate. Please. Maybe hating others. Maybe hating um, the world. Hostility. Maybe you lack forgiveness. Malice. I don't know what it is. Maybe you speak unkind words. Whatever sin you have. Sins against God, sins against others, sins of personality, sins of neglect, what you fail to do. I want you to know the beautiful promise that all sins will be forgiven the children of man. I love that. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing that the God in his very nature desires to forgive people. That in Nehemiah, I love this passage in Nehemiah 9, 6 and se- uh, 16 and 17, it says, but they and their fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck, stubborn, and did not obey my commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. God desires to forgive. I want you to know this as well, because this doesn't happen with humanity. When God forgives you, he forgives you completely. See, humans, I'll say I forgive you, but you know what? You really have to be really good and keep it up. That's not what... God does. When God forgives you, he forgives you completely. There is therefore now what? No condemnation, Romans 8.1, for those that are in Christ Jesus. I want you to know that when God forgives you, he forgives you, but it costs you absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. But it was extremely costly to God. In Isaiah, you know, surely he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows, but he He was esteemed stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon Christ. And by his wounds, we have been what? Healed. It cost God everything in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring about your forgiveness. For God so what? Loved what? The world. That he what? Gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall what? Not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. That's his forgiveness. God's forgiveness, he will never, ever, ever, ever withhold forgiveness from those that are truly repentant. You will never have somebody that is in hell saying, I truly repented and they really did. And God says, yep, you really did repent. A godly repentance that I'm going to send you to an eternity in hell will not happen. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. 
God will not despise Psalm 51, 17. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You need to grab this doctrine of forgiveness. I sit with people at times that are so dominated with their past sin more than the Savior, dominated with their guilt more than grace. You need to hear gospel grace that you are forgiven and set free in Christ. There is no sin that God cannot forgive except it's an interesting word. Verse 29, but whosoever blasphemes against the Lord, Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness. Wow. This amazing good news has now come down to this solemn warning, the bad news. Now, I've told you the crowd is here. And the crowd of people that are around, the curious crowd, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel again. All sins can be forgiven in me. But then he condemns this group right here. He gives this solemn warning to them. You are so very close to losing it all. He says, verse 29, but whatever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. The religious leaders of the time had just witnessed Jesus' driving out disease and driving out demons and preaching a message that aligns with the Old Testament, and they rejected it. In full light of the gospel, they said no. But they didn't just say no and reject him. They said that that message was coming from Satan. And Jesus' response is very strong here. His response is this, I can forgive all sins. I don't care what the sin is, I can forgive all sin. But this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot or never has been forgiven. It's interesting, why is it the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Blasphemies against God the Father, blasphemies against the Jesus Christ the Son can be forgiven, but not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Blasphemy is this um, disregard for the person or the name of Christ, the person of God. goes back to the commandments. goes back to how we are supposed to reverence God, reverence God, even his name. I will dare say that there is probably not a person in this room that has not blasphemed God. I was watching a TV show. I had to turn it off. I don't know how many times I heard the name of God taken just flippantly. Oh, my. You don't even have to use the curses. Just even taking his name upon your lips without a reverence for him is blasphemy. Oh, J.C., 
It's always amazing to me. I think I've said this to you before. As I watch these things, I never hear them saying, oh, Muhammad. Nobody ever says, oh, Muhammad, right? Nobody says that. Oh, Buddha. They don't say it. It's a clear sign to me that there is a only one God in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a rebel inside of me that hates that and will attack even his very name. But God says, Jesus says, even that can be forgiven. This is different. So why is this so much more worse? Why is this so so horrible? Why is this so reprehensible? This is not just a momentary act. This is a determined reality to look at the full face of what God has done and say it is of the devil. It's evil. It's wrong. It's this persistent rebellion in my heart to hear the good news of the gospel and reject, 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 reject. The writer of the Hebrews says that you must be very careful that you do not put yourself in a position where you've heard the beautiful gospel and you've rejected it, where else are you going to turn? I fear for people, very honestly, that sit in a congregation like ours, that hear the gospel week after week and have never bent your knee to Christ. Because every time you hear the gospel and you say no, it's just another callous that is being formed on your heart. That's why the writer of Hebrews was saying, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you should bend your knee to Christ. That if you hear the good news of the message, do not persistently defy him. Do not callous your heart. Do not calcify your heart. Calcify your heart. Do not persist in your unbelief. Repent. And when you repent, God will receive you. Because he loves to do that. So this willful, persistent, defiant disobedience and rejection of God's word and God's authority here in the person of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying there is never forgiveness. I oftentimes in my counseling ministry will oftentimes find people who will say, have I committed the sin? And I can guarantee them at that point in time, if they are worried that they committed the sin, guess what? They haven't committed the sin. Because this is a persistent rebellion. They don't care. And they've become so hardened, they're not fearing that they may have done this. They don't care and they're rejecting. That's not you if you believe that. Um, Blaspheming the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that you've taken the name of God in vain. I just said that we probably all have done that, even in a um, not thoughtful way. We all do that. This unforgivable sin is the fact that this person has persisted in their rebellion against God, and primarily the Holy Spirit, because Jesus, as he's working here on earth, he's doing it by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. So as he's healing diseases, it's by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. When he's, ra- when he's removing demons, it's by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. So this work that is being done is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if they're rejecting what is happening, they're rejecting the Holy Spirit. They're rejecting the overall message. 
So I, I just say to you that if you're fearful that you've committed this sin, then you haven't. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you haven't committed this sin. We're not perfect, but that's why we can... Uh, don't forget that verse 29 does not negate the beauty of verse 28. That whoever comes to Christ, all sins can be forgiven. All right, let's move to our last section. So Jesus has now come to a place where he has met and he said, I want to tell you what my true family is. Mark 3, verses 31 to 35. His mother and his brothers came to him and said, they were standing outside, and they sent to him and called him. Now, you remember back in the early part of the chapter, the mother and family are concerned about Jesus and even critical about Jesus, and they think that he has what? Lost his mind. So now what they're doing is they're coming to seize him, to arrest him. Intervention time. Your mother and father are outdoor, out the door. Outside. Find that word interesting. Your mother and brothers are outside and there's a crowd with him inside. And the crowd sitting around him said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And then Jesus said, what? This incredible statement that Jesus makes, I mean, this question, who are my mother and brothers? Jesus had a piercing question for the leaders earlier. Now he's got another piercing question here. Who are my mother and brothers? And he's basically saying that this time has come that relationships here on earth between human being and human being in families are not as essential as the relationship that you have with God and other believers. Some of us have come from broken homes and some of us have had really difficult backgrounds. I've heard them in my office hour after hour. And what I will tell you is this. You may have a broken spouse. You may have broken parents. You may have a broken family. But in Christ and his family, you have a true family. You have a true father who will never leave you or forsake you. You have a true brother who's willing to die for you. You have the true counselor in the Holy Spirit who is with you every single day. He loves you. They love you and they are with you. That's a true family. Those are the leaders of our true family. And then Jesus is saying, who are my mother and brothers? He's looking around at those and he says, I want you to tell you this, that here are my mother and brothers. I don't know what that would do to cut. As I said, my mom's back there. I don't know what it would do to cut. I mean, that can't, I mean, that must have cut Mary's heart to hear her son say, who is my mother? And that my real mother are those that are with me. But it probably reminds Mary of what she heard with the angel that you're going to have a child that's going to be the son of God. And throughout her life with Jesus, she probably had to battle those earthly relationships versus seeing as my savior. I'm his mom. No, he's my savior. I'm his mom. No, he's my savior. No, mom, savior. This battle that she's going through. But his brothers just did not believe him. Scripture tells us that James, who's going to become one of the leaders in the church, that Jesus is going to come to James specifically after his resurrection, and James is going to believe upon him. Jude, the next to last book of the Bible, was a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these brothers, 
who did not believe him now and are thinking he's out of his mind are going to come to faith in Christ because all sin can be what? Forgiven. Forgiven. He ends with this. For whatever does the, whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. I just want you to know that um, young people, um, I don't know why you're here today. I hope you're here because you really want to be here. You will not be saved just because your parents are saved. So family ties do not get you into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know those that have supposedly trust in Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus ends this by saying that you have to live in obedience to me. And what does it mean to obey? It means to trust and to obey him. I have seen people who have claimed faith in Lord Jesus Christ, but their lives are no no different than when they were supposedly saved decades ago. They have no passion for his word. They have no passion to listen to his gospel. They have no passion to change in their lives. And I will tell you that if that is you, I will give you a warning that in all likelihood, there's a reason to question your salvation. See, what Jesus says is that when I come into a person's heart and life, I radically change them. When this person's disease is gone, it's gone. When the demon, I say go, it's gone. And when I come into a person's life to cause them to be born again, they are radically different. Jesus had said, if you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. So I guess I go back to this and I'll end with this. What is your opinion of Jesus? Jesus is is deranged, right? He's out of his mind. He's crazy. Or Jesus is demonic. Or Jesus is deity. C.S. Lewis years ago had said this. Listen to this quote. You probably have heard it before. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be what? God. That is one thing that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and says the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman madman, or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. His family thought he was a lunatic. The the leaders around him thought he was a liar, demon-possessed. Those that were seated, seated at his feet saw him as Lord, 
I wonder what camp you're in today. Is Jesus insane and dwelt by Satan, or is he infinite and majestic, king of kings and lord of lords? Is he deranged? Is he a demon, or is he deity? I'll end with this. My, I have this song that I love. Lauren L. Harris sang this song years ago, and it goes this way. Freedom. Oh, I long for the day when I could say that I have freedom. Jesus came my way. What a happy day. I was walking in darkness to the light. But he set me free. He gave me the right to say he, he who the sun set free is free indeed. Well, I'm free from the chains that bound me free since the day he found me. Oh, he opened up a way. He brought a better day. I was living in sin. I had no peace within till Jesus set me free when I let him in. And he who the sun sets free is what? Free indeed. This morning, I pray that you would not walk out of here with the mumbo-jumbo that Jesus was a good moral teacher. He hasn't left you that option. You will either have to say that he's a lunatic like his family thought initially. You will either have to think that he's a liar. Or you will either have to bend your knee and think he's Lord. And he wants to give you forgiveness and freedom. It's there for you today. Will you trust Christ alone for your salvation? Let today be the day of your salvation. Let's pray. So, Father... The pressure that your son must have felt, I can't even imagine. Father, what we see in our world today, and we see the chaos and the confusion, we see the hatred and the political unrest, the religious unrest, and all of the struggles, broken families, but the entire attack of hell is now being placed against your son and hell is even using the religious leaders of his time to attack him. Hell is even using his family to attack him. And Jesus trusted you. Peter tells us that he entrusted himself to one who judges justly. Help us to do the same. Father, there are people in this room who I believe who have never trusted in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray today is the day that they bend their knee to your son. I pray today they would recognize that all sin can be forgiven. Help them to stop living in self-righteousness and believing that they can't and don't need to be saved. Help them to stop living in persistent guilt who believes that their sin is too great that you could ever save them. And help them to run to your son's cross. And run to the fact that there's an empty tomb. Run to the fact that he's been ascended. Run to the fact that he's right now at your right hand. And run to the fact that he is interceding and he is sending his Holy Spirit to open blind eyes and open dead hearts and open deaf ears and to bring people to faith. I pray that that would happen today. And for the many of us that do know you, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the great grace that you've given us in Christ and help us to live obediently, not out of duty, but out of desire and delight, not out of because we have to, but because we want to 
As Paul had said, help us to be compelled by love, controlled by love, moved by love, motivated by love. A love for your son and a love for others. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, would you do me a favor and stand with me as we close in our benediction? If you um, find yourself at a place where you just want to talk to somebody and uh, you you want to talk to somebody about what it means to be a Christian, I, I just pray that you would come down front, speak to some of the leaders that are here, and we would love to talk to you about who Christ is and what he has done for you. I want to tell you about a blasphemer, and I'll end with this. In, in 1 Timothy, Paul, a blasphemer, said this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his servants, though I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted in ignorant unbelief. But the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with a faith and a love that are in Christ. This is a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I've received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Blessings. Have a great day. This has been Lessons for Life with James Long Jr. We hope you've been blessed. For more information, go to jameslongjr.org.